Welcome to The Majlis. I'm your host, Adnan Hussein, director of the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project at Queen's University. And today I'm really delighted to have a special guest, Dr. Michael Ferguson, who recently gave a wonderful presentation sponsored by MSGP entitled The Making and Unmaking of the African Community in Ottoman Izmir, 1870 to 1922. And it was so interesting and revealing about uh, an aspect of Ottoman history that I don't think many people are very aware of that I was intrigued and wanted to follow up with a further discussion just broadly about his research and interests for uh, the audience on the Mudgeless. But first, let me introduce him properly. He is an affiliate assistant professor in the Department of History at Concordia University in Montreal. And after completing his doctorate in history at McGill University in 2015, he joined the Department of History at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London as a Shirk postdoctoral fellow. I love SOAS. I myself spent two years there. So uh, I feel like uh, we have some kind of a bond sharing uh, what a wonderful institution that is and a great part of London to be. Uh, but after that, he also held a postdoctoral fellowship at the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance and Abolition at Yale University, and has held uh, positions as visiting scholars in the Department of Sociology at the New School for Social Research and at the Hagop Kevorkian Center for Near and Middle Eastern Studies at NYU, another institution that I spent some time at as well. So. Um, his most recent publications is a chapter on the history of abolitionism in the Ottoman Empire, on the, in the Ottoman Empire, in the Palgrave Handbook of Bondage and Human Rights in Africa and Asia. And he's finalizing an article length project entitled Survival Skills and Sacred Practices, Food Histories of Enslaved and Emancipated African Women in the Late Ottoman Empire. This all sounds so fascinating. I hope we'll hear a little bit more about it. Michael, thanks so much for joining and making time to speak further with me. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Wonderful. Well, you know, I was curious, um, just if you could tell us a little bit how you came to this project of studying the history of slavery and migration in the late Ottoman Empire and early Turkish Republic. Yeah, you know, it's actually uh, a question that I get asked often, and I don't often provide uh, a clear or decisive answer, but I'll try to give one uh, now for you and, and, and the audience. Um, I was a second year undergraduate student in uh, the history program at Carleton University during the uh, September 2001 uh, attacks. And I was uh, in the second or first week of a new course, a special course offered in the uh, Carleton History Department on the history of the Ottoman Empire. And I felt immediately after these events occurred that this was the class that would help me understand, uh, you know, the, the kinds of uh, things that people were saying in the media that, I, that, that this class would enable me to kind of uh, understand the true realities of the lived histories of peoples of, of the Middle East, right. as, as opposed to what was being said in the media after, yeah. after the attacks. Uh, and it was something that uh, kind of really stuck with me in the sense that it was the first class that I uh, wanted to know more about after it was done. I was not necessarily uh, the best student uh, throughout high school and, and my early undergraduate career, but that class kind of changed everything. Mm. Uh, I started emailing the professor, you know, I've read all the books, you know, on this topic. Can you give me more? Can you give me more? Can you give me more? And um, despite not having any other classes in that topic, I was reading on it since that point. And that led me to uh, do a, a, a master's uh, in Islamic studies at McGill University, um, which was Crucial for some reason or other, I can't explain uh, Turkish and and the Ottoman Empire and and the 19th century fascinated me the most, perhaps because it's the kind of closest uh, to our our modern or postmodern world that we live in uh, in a historical sense. And you could see kind of the lineages or origins of of things that we're being debated about in the media going back to the 19th century. 
Um, it's a sort of like approximate past, you know? Yeah, to, yeah, it's something that I could wrap my head around, whereas maybe the 15th or 16th century, I, I couldn't envision that far back in my, mm -hmm. in my mind. So, so something close enough that it was almost real. There was, there was people, you know, living at that time who are still, you know, former citizens of the Ottoman Empire uh, walking amongst us. And um, so uh, with that done, I, I did what many people, uh, you know, after their, their masters do is I, I took a year abroad and I taught English uh, while I kind of sorted out what I really want to do with myself. And I taught English in, in Istanbul uh, where I was able to continue improving my Turkish and really kind of get to see in person all the kinds of things that I had been reading about uh, for, for years, but now at that point. Um, and there was one day, it was really on the, only on the weekends when I could uh, get to the kind of main core, the cool part of the city where I was in a bookstore and uh, a book kind of struck me in a way that a book has never struck me before. Uh, there was a face of a sub-Saharan African looking person on uh, the cover of this book. And uh, it was facing out, the book was facing out, looking at me and it was called, uh, uh, you know, something about, uh, you know, stories of uh, uh, enslaved Africans uh, in the Ottoman Empire. Mm. And immediately I thought, I need to know more about this. I, I knew I knew to some degree that there was African slavery in the Ottoman Empire, just like there was in all parts of the world, especially in the 19th century. But there was something about this book that drew me in. And um, the bus rides home uh, to where I was teaching were over an hour long and heavy traffic. So I was able to sit with that book for that an intense hour, probably had a dictionary in my backpack, which helped me along through the, the book. And I realized it was a memoir. Uh, it was a, a, a man, Mustafa Olpak, who uh, it turns out was a, a person of African descent himself, an Afro-Turkish uh, person who uh, had written a family history memoir. And it was the first of its kind to ever really reveal uh, the, the lives of people who are descendant of enslaved Africans in the late Ottoman Empire. And it was only published in, in that exact year that I saw it. And I knew right then and there that this book was kind of, you know, a turning point uh, in, my, in my career. I didn't even know I wanted to do a PhD necessarily, but mm -hmm. I knew from that point onwards that this was, you know, going to be the focus of my work. And so uh, with that kind of inspiration in my hand, um, I applied uh, to work with uh, a historian of slavery in the Indian Ocean world um, at uh, McGill University, who I just arrived, Gwen Campbell. And his specialty is kind of uh, Madagascar, Zanzibar, mm -hmm. India. So uh, in some ways, a comparative uh, analogy for, for African slavery in the Ottoman Empire. There was a, a lot of kind of overlap between the things that I was interested in and him. And... Uh, that's it. I was able to right. kind of focus my work entirely on the history of, of African slavery and their descendants in mm -hmm. the Ottoman Empire and their legacies in the Turkish Republic. I think I just should just add one thing is that what struck me was that it was so um, unexpected, just kind of like you said in the introduction, I had never really understood, you know, the magnitude of this in, this, in the sense that there's descendants of these people still in Turkey today, still debating and, and, and struggling with their identity and, and trauma of, of living with the legacies of, of slavery. Wow, that is amazing. So, so sometimes when you said, uh, I don't have a good explanation, it seems to me that is an um, amazing and perfect explanation that Felicity, sometimes you come across something that just absolutely piques your interest and is a story that needs to be told and investigated uh, further. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. What an amazing uh, find, yeah, to, to come across that. Um, and you mentioned that um, you worked uh, with somebody who specialized in um, Indian Ocean um, enslavement and um, African diasporas in the Indian Indian Ocean, mm -hmm. um, are most of the uh, Africans um, and their descendants um, in the Ottoman Empire were they from this region of East Africa that also connected with the um, 
you know, Indian Ocean world in trade. And I know, of course, in um, certainly by the 18th, 19th centuries, the Ottomans are also involved quite heavily in the Red Sea. They're, uh, of course, they've uh, been, um, you know, uh, uh, guardians of the holy places in the Arabian Peninsula, but also even in uh, what is today, I guess, Eritrea, they had established, uh, yeah. um you know, ports and presence in there. So what kind of interaction was there? And is this really where most of the Africans come from is uh, the Horn or, you know, Eastern coast regions yeah. of Africa? Um, you can probably draw a line if you're, if you're uh, trying to figure out where the Ottoman Empire uh, drew enslaved Africans from. Uh, if you take uh, in North Africa, uh, Tripoli, which is in Libya today, mm -hmm. And you draw a line south, uh, just uh, south of the Sahara. That's kind of one side. Mm -hmm. uh, so enslaved Africans would have been moved across the Sahara to the North African coast, particularly to Tripoli, Benghazi, and uh, earlier up the Nile to, to Cairo and Alexandria as well. So there's a kind of a trans-Saharan route. And then there's the route that moves eastwards. And the kind of southern limits of that eastern route would be uh, Tanzania, the island of Zanzibar, which was uh, one of the most important uh, ports and, and slaving ports in, in the Indian Ocean, um, especially in the 19th century. Uh, so slaves moving out of Zanzibar would have been shipped you know, up the coast of, of East Africa, either into the Red Sea, perhaps traded in, in Jeddah, the port of Mecca and Medina, mm -hmm. or into the Persian Gulf to the uh, now Iraqi city of Basra, which was part of the Ottoman Empire. So there's kind of different routes that the uh, enslaved peoples would come into the empire from, and it changed over time depending on um, availability or other political situations. By the end of the 19th century, it was really that Trans-Saharan route across to to Libya, uh, to Benghazi in particular, that that was predominant. That's generally the area that I um, study. But certainly, there are enslaved Africans that are leaving from the port of Zanzibar, which may be destined for the Ottoman Empire, mm -hmm. which may be destined for Iran, which may be destined for India, or even farther uh, farther eastwards than that. Uh, right. So. Wow. Fascinating. Um, and. Um, how did they come into slavery typically? I mean, are these war captives or people who are raiding or, uh, you know, what are the ways in which um, this, uh, you know, one dare not call it recruitment, but how do they acquire um, uh, slaves that would come into the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, uh, for the uh, area that I know most about, which is the lands to the east of Lake Chad. So this is for the, the trans-Saharan uh, trade. There's uh, conflict in between different groups uh, there. Uh, Darfur, you've probably heard of, right. and its neighbor to the west is Wadai. These are small um, uh, African uh, groups or entities, sometimes uh, calling themselves sultanates or empires mm -hmm. or kingdoms. Mm -hmm that are uh, struggling amongst one another and uh, using export as a source of, of their economy. And so uh, it is really through conflict in that area that um, people are then shipped uh, either eastwards or, no or northwards. There's a kind of also, there's a seasonal element to uh, that conflict uh, that may explain, there's not a lot of hard evidence on this, but, but may explain the availability of more people at a certain time of year, which is, um, Lake Chad is uh, known for, uh, in the, the rainy season, expanding dramatically and being an area uh, of rich agricultural production. But in uh, the dry season, in the summertime, the lake shrinks so mm. dramatically that there often leads to food shortages. And this results in conflict and the um, food uh, resources don't necessarily uh, equal out to the amount of people who need the food. Uh, so there's often a, a movement of people outside of that region and that right. may involve uh, uh, enslavement as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, some people may not know very much about the history of or the nature of the institution of slavery in Ottoman society and, and history. 
there's a lot of scholarship, of course, on the subject of early modern and modern slavery, um, increasingly not just in the Atlantic context, but in work by people who study the Mediterranean and also the Middle East, as you're doing. I'm wondering, you know, if you have any thoughts on differences in the institution and these kinds of conditions in different contexts and how it compares with the historiography that people might be much more familiar with, broadly speaking, about, you know, slavery, African slavery in um, the Western Hemisphere, and particularly in North America, in the U.S., U.S. South, and so on. And this is really a, a key question that, um, you know, everyone's reference point for African slavery often, perhaps even because of popular culture in the 20th century, we think of the United States and, and, and the Southern plantations. Uh, so, you know, when we're talking about slavery in other contexts around the world, it's something slightly differently, but we always constantly have to be referencing that uh, what we call Atlantic or American slavery because it's a kind of our reference point. So we can we can make some kind of uh, divisions in between the two kinds of slavery that exist. First and foremost, uh, African slavery is only one of a few different kinds of slavery that existed in the Ottoman Empire in mm -hmm. the 19th century. So this is different than, of course, in the Americas, where uh, there is a, a smaller amount, of course, of uh, indigenous uh, enslavement, but African slavery is predominant. In the Ottoman Empire and elsewhere, there's also a second stream of uh, enslaved, enslaved people moving into uh, the Ottoman Empire who are known as the so-called white slaves or oh. Circassians coming from uh, the Caucasus region. So that mountainous territory in between the Caspian Sea and, and Black Sea, uh, there the Ottoman Empire also drew upon slaves, another kind of zone of instability, much like the one that we we're talking about earlier uh, to the east of Lake Chad. Um, <clears throat> so we can think about, you know, this is not only, you know, this not just African slavery for the Ottoman Empire. So with that being said, we can now focus entirely on, on African slavery in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, one key difference with American slavery is that uh, in the Ottoman Empire, African slavery was not plantation-based labor. Uh, it was largely domestic labor. Uh, so within the household, mm -hmm. cooking, cleaning, and child rearing are really the focus of African slavery in the Ottoman Empire. And that also ref is reflected in a kind of uh, difference in the demographic or gender makeup in between those uh, being enslaved in the Atlantic world and those being enslaved in the Ottoman Empire. So in the Atlantic world where plantation labor, uh, cash crop production is the focus of uh, African slavery, there the majority of enslaved peoples are uh, men. So roughly two thirds are, uh, uh, are men. Whereas it's in fact the exact opposite in the Ottoman Empire, because you're you're dealing with domestic labor as a, as a focus, cooking, cleaning, child rearing, as I said, two thirds of enslaved Africans in the Ottoman Empire are women. So this is another key uh, difference. Um, a couple other things to add. Uh, slavery in the Ottoman Empire was generally perceived to be a temporary state. Uh, there was cultural traditions that you were kind of uh, supposed to manumit your uh, your slaves after roughly seven to ten years. Um, and uh, while there's no kind of rule for whether that happened or not, uh, you know, it, generally that seems to be the idea. And the function of slavery actually was different as well. I should have probably started with that is that. Whereas in the Americas, you know, we're looking simply at this kind of economic, um, you know, uh, enslaved labor to, uh, you know, profit. Uh, the line is very straight in between those, those two things. In the Ottoman Empire, the idea of holding enslaved Africans is not, not simply to just to benefit from their labor, but as a means of increasing your social capital. So uh, the more people you could have in your household under your employee or, or uh, who are you enslaving demonstrates to others of your status uh, in the Ottoman Empire that you are you know, a wealthy individual of a certain amount of power. And this is a kind of um, 
uh, way one would kind of work to improve their own position in Ottoman society. And that being said, those who are uh, emancipated by their enslaver in the Ottoman Empire uh, are supposed to maintain some kind of patron-client relations after emancipation as well. So there's another uh, kind of difference between uh, the Ottoman and American contexts. Right. Okay. So there's um, a continuing social relationship that can undergo changes in the sense that you might be more subordinate and dependent as a slave and more restricted, but even post manumission, you're affiliated and connected with that household as an interest group, as a set of alliances for solidarity and support in negotiating life in Ottoman society. Um, yeah, maybe, you know, the most simple version would be, you know, maybe you you are working in the, one of the businesses that the mm-hmm. head of the household owns as, as mm-hmm. a porter or as a tradesman or craftsman, that kind of thing. Right. And sometimes, I mean, I think uh, there are cases perhaps also of where somebody is an agent who works on behalf, uh, carries goods and sells them in the bazaar, does commercial or mercantile activity, and then even post-emancipation might be, you know, working in that kind of uh, function or capacity. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, Those are some very significant differences in terms of social role and and characteristics. Um, Also, was, you know, given the gendered orientation and nature uh, of the work that women's labor, women doing women's labor as it was defined in the Mm -hmm. social division of labor in the household, uh, what happens to um, descendants, uh, ch- children, offspring, um, both in terms of their status, um, in terms of whether they remain as slaves if they're born to an enslaved uh, woman in, in a household, but also if they're male, what might happen? What might they do uh, since there's less opportunity, it sounds like, for work within the household? I suppose they would have to find some of these other jobs and tasks within business and, 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 and so on. Yeah. The, you know, it's not, uh, within the American system, you know, uh, we know that, uh, the person, uh, a child who is born, uh, from, uh, two enslaved people is legally also in, uh, a slave themselves. And this is not necessarily the case uh, in the Ottoman context as well. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the more um, interesting aspects of kind of the, the legal aspect of, of these kinds of things uh, in the Ottoman context is, is the uh, uh, legal concept of the umwalad, so uh, the mother of the child uh, in, in Arabic or Turkish. So if the enslaver uh, has a child with one of the uh, enslaved people in their uh, in their household, if they recognize the child as theirs, as, as their child legally, then that child is uh, considered to be free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on top of that, the enslaved woman who they had the child with uh, gains this kind of special status called umwalad, mother, uh, mother of the child, which is a kind of um, quasi enslaved status. They kind mm-hmm. of they're kind of move up in the rank of of enslaved people within the household. They're given mm-hmm. kind of more rights and freedoms because, in theory, you know, they're responsible for and caring for one of the the the, the children of, of the the man of the household. Mm-hmm. And this is mm-hmm. you know one of the ways that a, uh, a person at the head of a household would expand their uh, their household and increase their social capital would be through having children with uh, the enslaved. Now, generally, this occurred with uh, Circassian slaves, those white slaves. Uh, they were, in fact, purchased uh, with the, the intent that they would eventually become the wives of the uh, elite in the household. Uh, but often, there are instances that this happened with enslaved Africans as well. Right, but we so, don't have yeah. a lot of information on this topic. Right, beyond right, right. So you could say that um, it wasn't a racialized system of slavery, but that race could play a role in the way in which uh, someone's social status or particular roles within the household and the enslaved system might work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, without um, without using 
the concept of race too heavily because we mm -hmm. know it's kind of constructed in the Western yeah. American context. If we say um, the backgrounds of the enslaved women, whether mm -hmm. they're from Sub-Saharan Africa or uh, the Caucasus Mountains, determine their general trajectories. Mm -hmm. That is, mm -hmm. the enslaved Circassians are much more likely to be mobile within the household, to advance uh, maybe to become a wife of, of the uh, the leading man of the house and uh, kind of move up within a social status, whereas uh, enslaved Africans coming from, from sub-Saharan Africa are uh, generally resigned to the menial tasks in the household and have much less mobility in the household as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, very interesting. Um, you know, in my period, I'm a medieval historian or pre-modern Muslim society. So there are additional kind of categories of uh, um, enslaved people. So, for example, like military uh, slaves. Yeah. So uh, oddly enough, you know, with the Mamluk system in Egypt, you have the ruling dynasty and the military and political class coming from people who are technically slaves to the sovereign in their household. And I'm wondering if you see anything similar to this. I know that in, under the Mamluks and well, under the Fatimids, for example, there were particular uh, cores or groups um, of African military slaves, as well as, of course, they might come from others. They're Turkic and Circassian and, and so on. Uh, was there anything sort of like this um, um, in the Ottoman Empire that you've uh, come across or noticed? Yeah, so uh, the reason I mentioned these, these two sources, either Sub-Saharan Africa or the Caucasus, are simply because in the period that I study, which is the 19th century, mm -hmm. those were the two pools of people which the Ottoman Empire had the ability to kind of draw upon uh, mm -hmm. for uh, enslavable labor. If you move back a couple centuries uh, into the let's say 16th and 17th century, uh, when the Ottoman Empire was uh, expanding or at least fighting in the, the northern extremes of, of the Balkan Peninsula, there they were also drawing upon uh, peoples as part of, uh, as conflict as well. So uh, with the Habsburgs or others, their war captives are also part of uh, enslavable peoples, although, for the period that I study, that boundary as a, as a kind of zone of expansion is no longer mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And it's really uh, the Ottoman Empire's powers are much more limited. And they're looking at <clears throat> zones of conflict on their borders where they could acquire people. Mm -hmm. And um, the, uh, the lands to the east of Lake Chad in particular uh, are connected along these trans-Saharan trade routes to Ottoman ports in, in North Africa. And uh, the Caucasus Mountains are being squeezed somewhat by an expanding Russian empire moving southwards into what is now Ukraine and down into the Caucasus and the kind of um, instability as a result of those conflicts uh, enable the Ottomans to draw more and more peoples from, from the uh, Caucasus as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, fascinating. Well, I noticed that you also um, study and have recently published about uh, abolition and its history. So not only the institution of slavery, but also efforts uh, to end it in various ways. And I'm wondering how does the vantage of studying this from Ottoman uh, society in the late 19th century look or contrib contribute to that history and the key issues or debates in the history of manumission and abolition? Yeah. Uh, well, the, the interesting feature is that there's really no uh, indigenous Ottoman movement for the end of slavery. There is no anti-slavery society gathering uh, in uh, the capital, Constantinople. There is no societies, uh, religious societies, you know, uh, or, or women's groups pushing mm -hmm. the government to end slavery. Slavery was seen as an entirely legal, uh, thanks to its condonement in the religious texts, um, and kind of core part of how the society was organized. And how abolition, that is uh, the end, the push to end slavery occurs in the Ottoman Empire is from uh, entirely external forces. So in particular, the British Empire, after it um, 
abolishes uh, the slave trade uh, uh, across the Atlantic on its own and pushes to, to end slavery worldwide. And they begin this movement to kind of police the movement of uh, or end the Africans globally. And how they do this is they use their, uh, what they were known for, their naval force around the world. But what they're doing really is they're using this kind of humanitarian mission to end slavery worldwide, African slavery, as an excuse for the British Empire to involve itself in the politics of all parts of the world. They use that as another kind of entry point. Mm. Um, they use the kind of humanitarian argument, we need to end slavery, therefore we need to engage with you on a number of different issues and you're going to need to reform these things and also you know, let us you know, work in your ports, monitor your trade and these kinds of things. So uh, by around the 1840s, the British uh, ambassador in Constantinople begins to push the Ottoman government to end slavery. Mm-hmm. And the only reason the Ottomans really begin um, acquiescing to this, this political pressure is that they, by that point, are uh, dependent upon particularly British and French support against that aggressive expanding Russian empire from the south, uh, mm-hmm. from the north, I apologize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they need, uh, you know, military uh, technology and strategy and also trade relations to be maintained with the British and French so they can kind of uh, strengthen their, their, uh, their own armies and, and, and economies so they could be ready for the next uh, conflict with the Russian Empire, which was happening from the 18th century every, every decade or two, really. And each one mm-hmm. is much more disastrous uh, than the next uh, for mm-hmm. the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But by 1846, you see uh, the successful push to end the public slave market in uh, the capital of Constantinople, which was just outside the Ottoman palace. The Ottoman palace, of course, was the largest purchaser of all enslaved peoples in the entire empire. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then uh, the kind of major date we use as, as the turning point is 1857. 1857 is when under British pressure, um, and after the Crimean War, another war in which uh, the British and French dramatically supported the Ottomans against the Russian Empire. Um, 1857, the Sultan issues an edict prohibiting the uh, importation of Africans into Ottoman lands. And what that means in that kind of uh, that phrasing is that while slavery rem- remains entirely legal, you cannot trade Africans anymore in Ottoman lands. So the, the theory was that they would kind of, uh, you know, cut the supply of enslaved mm-hmm. Africans to the, to the Ottoman Empire and slowly but surely the, the demand would also kind of peter out as well. And the Ottoman Empire doesn't actually abolish slavery uh, at all. Uh, it, um, they lose World War I. There is a kind of a, you know, a nationalist movements and uprising, including the formation of the new Turkish Republic. And it's only the Turkish Republic that mm-hmm. actually bans uh, slavery itself as, as a legal institution. Uh, so the process right. of abolition starts in the mid 19th century, we can say. Right, right. Okay. And uh, I guess I suppose just one note on that is, of course, that the whole institution legally and socially functions and operates in such a different way that you know, the uh, demands for abolition are, of course, developed originally by British in the context of the Atlantic slave system um, that they bring to bear and kind of globalize. Um, So it's an attempt to end this institution um, that varies rather dramatically in different in different contexts. Um, and, and their eyes are particularly on uh, African slavery. And they yes. almost totally forget about, and this is context outside of the Ottoman Empire, in particular, uh, you're talking when you're talking about India or other elements, other parts of the Indian Ocean world, there are enslaved peoples that are currently mm-hmm. existing, but the British officials are singularly focused on African slavery. And this is because of their experience in the uh, the Atlantic world where the trade yes. was Africans. Right, although I imagine that there was in the context of Mediterranean captivity and enslavement a lot discursively about Europeans um, who were enslaved through 
you know, being war captives or because of Barbary pirates who yeah. attack ships and so on. And while the numbers may not have been necessarily that great, that also, I think, discursively loomed fairly large in European discourses on Ottoman or at least Muslim, you know, Barbary pirates. You could tell us more about how closely related they really were to the Ottoman state, but, you know, they're associated with the Turk. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think the threat of uh, the Ottoman Empire as an enslavable uh, force uh, was really a few centuries earlier than the 19th mm -hmm. century. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I haven't seen anything where, at least in the kind of government back and forth between British and Ottomans, or any popular reading I've done that that the idea of, you know, the terrible Turk who's going to, you know, capture uh, the, right. the British sailors doesn't really feature at that point, but yeah, probably yeah. On, a, on a popular level, right? Um, you know, it was still kind of circulating, let's say, you know, in the streets of London, that kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah. By the 19th century, of course, that's not really happening, but that's more a 16th, 17th, you know, century experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we haven't talked so much. I know we're uh, um, you've been generous with your time, but we haven't talked uh, much about the Africans themselves in uh, Izmir and other places and what their experience was like. Particularly, I'm interested in anything you might say about their community and w culturally what kept them together. And I'm thinking in particular, any of the distinctive features of their piety or religiosity and public celebrations since they had converted or been converted, uh, depending on the situation or how one uh, 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 understands it to Islam, but they also seem to maintain um, aspects or elements of prior religious practices. And, and uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about their life and um, culture in Ottoman society. Yeah. So uh, this is really the kind of core of my work. Uh, and what, what I was um, long interested in is uh, because there's so, so few um, academic books on the history of the Ottoman Empire and slavery as comparison to slavery in the Americas, uh, those of us working in the Ottoman Empire are still really trying to just establish the presence of, of Africans and their descendants. So uh, the core of my work is really kind of the social and cultural world that enslaved and emancipated Africans lived within in the late 19th century. And I look particularly at the, the port city of Izmir, uh, also known as, as Smyrna in English, uh, which was uh, probably the second city of the Ottoman Empire by the late 19th century, the period that I focus on. And also for a number of, of different reasons, uh, including abolition, uh, the city itself, I argue at least, had the highest proportion of enslaved and emancipated Africans uh, in that time period. And as such, they formed a um, distinct African quarter within the city. Now, you're not going to see that on, a, on maps, but uh, it is a kind of uh, on the margins of what is the Muslim quarter of the Ottoman city of Izmir. And there uh, they were, um, now I'm talking both about enslaved and emancipated Africans mm -hmm. and, and the statuses of these people is not clear, uh, but we know for certain by about the 1880s, there is enough uh, Africans in Izmir that they are celebrating an annual festival that uh, by uh, all accounts was a distinctly African festival. That is, is something unique to their community that they were doing that was different than what kind of the broader society in, in the, uh, Izmir was, was, was doing. And uh, well, it was called the Kaf Festival uh, in Turkish Danabayrama. And this is because the centerpiece of the festival, which occurred in May over the first three weekends in May, a calf was um, purchased. So the youngest and most beautiful calf, uh, money was raised by the community uh, to purchase the youngest and most beautiful calf. And there they would kind of parade it through the streets of particularly Muslim quarter of the city and uh, announced to the broader Ottoman society that, you know, the calf festival is starting, here is our calf. Uh, you know, next weekend is the big festival, the big feast. 
And often they were be wearing kind of uh, white uh, clothes and singing in what was reported as African languages, although we don't really have uh, much to say about what the, the words were uh, or, or the languages uh, being used. At the front of this kind of procession of the, with, next to the calf were the leaders of the African community. And these are uh, the elderly women in the community who also held not just a kind of social organizing role, but also a spiritual role. They were the priestesses of the community as well. And on the third weekend of the festival, this calf would be decorated with the most ornate pieces of cloth or, or dried peppers or uh, symbols, anything you could kind of tie to the calf, they would decorate it and walk it again through the city. And then at the highest point in the city, an, uh, an area called Kadife Kale, where the Africans actually lived, they would uh, perform a ceremony which ultimately led them to um, sacrifice this calf, uh, collect its blood in large pans and dip the blood, uh, dip their fingers in the blood and mark their faces with it. After mm -hmm. that, they would cook the calf along with a number of other kind of uh, dishes which seem to be particular to the community and spend the rest of the night kind of um, dancing and singing in a very distinct way, which, which separated themselves from uh, the rest of, of Ottoman society in Izmir. And this was a kind of spectacle for the broader uh, population in Izmir. People of all backgrounds would kind of come and watch to see what the Africans were doing at this time of year. And there were kind of refreshment tents set up for them and they would be watching. And of course they would be watching as spectators, not knowing the kind of spiritual significance of these uh, uh, practices. Uh, but what was behind them uh, for those kind of within the community, historians have been able to establish that uh, what is actually going on are elements of uh, uh, spirit possession belief systems coming from uh, Africa that are kind of taken along with the enslaved as well. Mm -hmm. And we know uh, the one from West Africa is called Bori. And the one uh, that we know in East Africa is called Zar. Now, generally, uh, you know, the, the elements are similar enough that we can talk about these are the things that are happening in Izmir, but we can't necessarily define in a certain detail because the population in Izmir of, of enslaved Africans and emancipated Africans are coming from a whole bunch of different uh, ethnic linguistic groups. So they're kind of recreating a new mm -hmm. social world in this, in this space. At the very same time, as they are enslaved and brought into the Ottoman Empire, they are theoretically and according to the Ottoman state Muslims. And uh, it's possible that some of them may have been uh, Muslims before they were enslaved, which is technically illegal, but uh, not really a, a general concern of those of buying and selling um, um, enslaved peoples. Um, so at the same time, they kind of associate this um, uh, African, let's say, Sub-Saharan African non-Muslim uh, practice with a Sufi belief system uh, mm -hmm. it, that was operating in that part of the city as well. There was a tomb that was operated by uh, Bekteshi Sufis and the actual sacrifice of the calf took a place next to the tomb. And in some ways we can see that the Africans may have been kind of strategically associating themselves with a form of Islam that may have been able to accept and integrate their, their unique practices at the same time. Right, right, right. And I think I understood as well that there was another shrine somewhat associated with this community that um, was of a figure who was an African um, uh, an African Sufi saint uh, that is commemorated in an earlier period of Ottoman history as a, almost a kind of spiritual forebear of the local African community right. in Izmir. So um, as, a, as a historian, my sources uh, for this, talk, this project were both archival. So you're looking at government documents, travel logs, memoirs, those kinds of things. But I also worked with the descendant community of Afro-Turks that live mm -hmm. in Izmir today. Mm -hmm. And I, the man uh, who I mentioned at the start of our, uh, of our 
discussion, Mustafa Olpak, who wrote that family history, I was able to connect with him years later, and he became kind of central to me uh, being able to kind of map on the ground in Izmir the, the, the cultural, social lives of the African community in the 19th century. And he brought me, uh, in I think 2015, he brought me to a small tomb um, just about 200 meters away from where uh, I believe this um, uh, calf festival to take place. He showed me uh, in a, a, next to a small house, uh, a, a little box on the ground with some candles in it and said, do you see that? That is the tomb of the uh, twin brother of uh, the uh, Sufi saint that where the Africans used to uh, perform their uh, calf festival and that this, uh, this tomb to this day was believed to be an African saint's tomb. And we were able to um, just talk to people living in that area, many of, many of whom whose families go back uh, decades, uh, if not centuries, and they said the same things to me. And these people were of non-African origin. They said, yes, this is an African saint. His brother is also an African saint. And his tomb used to be up higher on the hill. So what you, we see is that uh, this tomb that the Bektashi Sufis uh, in the 19th century uh, worshipped at, I think uh, the identities of who this person was, his name was Yusuf Dede, that's the tomb uh, uh, the person who was theoretically inside the tomb, his identity changed depending on who was using the tomb. Mm. Uh, so the Af for the African community, the uh, saint in the tomb is African at the same time. And interestingly, for the um, Greek Orthodox community in Izmir in the late 19th century, this very same tomb was also worshipped by that community as the tomb of St. Polycarp. So you can kind of see, you know, this shared sacred space, depending on who, who's using it, uh, it's changing kind of strategically. Right. right. Well, that's amazing. Um, you mentioned the Afro-Turk uh, community, or at least a major uh, um, figure who's been working on remembering and um, preserving some aspects of this identity, uh, somebody that you've met. Um, just any concluding thoughts on the legacies of that history from the 19th and early 20th century on contemporary uh, Afro-Turks. What does it mean to be an Afro-Turk today, these mm -hmm. descendants um, from, this, from this community in modern Turkey? Yeah, it's a bit of a heavy question because uh, as, as descendants of enslaved peoples, they're dealing with uh, a trauma that occurred to their ancestors that uh, ripped them from their homelands and placed them in an entirely new context where they were never fully uh, accepted or properly integrated into broader society, whether Ottoman or, or Turkish today. Their beliefs that they brought with them, such as the, the calf festival that I mentioned earlier, was something that was uh, seen in the 19th century as, uh, at times, uh, against Islam, immoral, uh, unethical. And these kinds of identities uh, in the 20th century were also suppressed by the Turkish state, who were, was very much focused on uh, promoting its brand and vision of who a Turk is and its kind of brand and vision of what Islam for Turks should be. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, what they're doing, and Mustafa Olpak initiated this, is uh, reaching back to the 19th century to try to understand uh, the peoples that they come from, and that they're very much actively uh, involved in this process of kind of identity self-exploration. Who are we? What does it mean to be formerly uh, descendants of for uh, formerly enslaved Africans in the Ottoman Empire? You know, what is our identity? How are we different? Um, you know, uh, how do we relate to the state uh, and other peoples in broader society uh, when they identify us because of our, our darkness in this way? So uh, that's where kind of my work moves out of history. And I almost kind of veer into the territory of ethnography, anthropology, because I'm, I'm watching a group uh, explore and almost uh, begin to understand their difference and 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 learn about their identities kind of in real time. Well, um, I'm sure your 
history and your study will be vital in their understanding of um, their ancestors and in thinking about their place in society today. So that is an amazing work, not only a story that you're telling um, that people are unfamiliar with, but a fascinating story and also one that hopefully will provide some sense of identity and continuity and connection for those descendants who are intrigued or interested to recover it today. I wanna thank you so much for a fascinating conversation your Thank work you. is so intriguing. There's so much more to ask you about. Yeah. I look forward. I hope, uh, you know, when you publish more of it and are ready to come and talk about different aspects of it. We didn't even uh, get to talk about food, unfortunately. Well, there you go. I mean, th th there's a whole topic there. I noticed that the, these African women that you were mentioning who uh, supervise the festival prepared all these special foods. So I'm uh, assuming you've been studying these food histories of, of these women. And that's something else we would love to hear about at some point. So sure. thank you so much for joining and I look forward to speaking with you again sometime soon. Okay, thank you very much, anytime. Thank you for joining us in The Medjlis, a podcast by MSGP. Muslim Society's Global Perspectives or MSGP is an initiative at Queen's University dedicated to connecting the complex history of Islamic societies with the contemporary world. You can connect, learn more, and support us by checking out our website, www.queensu.ca slash MSGP, and stay up to date with our events by following us on Twitter at MSGPQU and on our Facebook, MSGPQU. You can also follow our YouTube channel, The Medjlis.